So welcome to A Correction Podcast. I'm your host, Lev Moscow, and today I'm really excited to be joined by Alberto Toscano, who's a professor of critical theory in the Department of Sociology and co-director of the Center for Philosophy and Critical Theory at Goldsmiths University in London and term research associate professor at the School of Communications at Simon Fraser University. Welcome to the show, Alberto. Thanks. Glad to be here. So I'd like to talk today about fascism um, and a piece you wrote for the New Left Review called The Night Watchman's Bludgeon. And I want to start with some really basic questions. Um, So you wrote that on uh, the 29th of October, 1922, Benito Mussolini was propelled to power by the March on Rome, where he inaugurated the fascist era. So just a really simple historical question. What exactly was was this March on Rome? The March on Rome, I suppose, was uh, in many ways the, the culmination of a whole set of violent and spectacular actions taken by the fascist movement in the couple of years before, so 1920, 21, 22, many of which involved violent clashes with or what they called, I guess, punitive uh, attacks on uh, socialist uh, administrations and I guess also uh, organized trade unions, right, Uh, across Italy, especially in the center and north. Uh, And the March on Rome was the scaling up, I suppose, of that practice of uh, what was called squadrismo, this um, uh, street uh, and violent politics of, of fascist squads to the national level, right? As a, as a gambit to force the king uh, uh, to um, welcome uh, Mussolini, uh, to, to ask Mussolini basically to take the reins of the of the government. So it was presented retroactively as a sort of revolutionary insurrectional inauguration of this fascist era. And so it was celebrated as such, right? For, for during the during the 20 odd years of the fascist uh, regime. Uh, but it was really in many ways also a tactical uh, operation to enter into government, actually what in the end was a legal way, right, with uh, being asked to to form a government by the king. And famously, Mussolini waited in or or near Milan and therefore near to the Franco-Italian border uh, to make sure that the tactic was going to work and that he had a, he didn't have to make a, you know, quick uh, getaway, so to speak. And so, and so I guess right after he does this march in late October, what happens next? Does the king did the king say, "Okay, we want you to, we want you to become the prime minister"? And what what was the situation like in Italy that would that would have the king agree to something like that? Well, uh, the so that that is what uh, that is what happens. That uh, Mussolini is asked to form a government. In fact, there is an effort by the then sitting prime minister by by the the government at the time to basically in, invoke uh martial law and and block right the the so-called march which would have been you know at the level of just firepower and logistics entirely doable right um 
but he basically the king refuses to sign the order right to to implement martial law and that de facto it goes you know hand in hand with the uh the decision to bring uh Mussolini into into the fold uh I mean he'd been a, a minority partner uh, a little earlier in a in a government coalition so this is a moment of course of great political uh instability though according to some accounts the revolutionary um path or option of the so-called uh bienioroso the red two years right 1919 and 1920 where you see a mass movement of factory occupations um, in which uh, the group around Antonio Gramsci, Lodina Nuovo plays a very big role in Turin and also of uh, land uh, occupations and efforts at agrarian reform. That in many ways had already been uh, thwarted partly by the government, partly very much by this kind of these forms of fascist uh, violence as well as by divisions internal to the left. But it's still a situation of considerable uh, political and I, I guess economic uh, instability. And you have this kind of sequence of of governing uh, coalitions of, you know, liberals and conservatives and nationalists, et cetera, which can't manage to cohere. And in a way there's some, though the economic situation is arguably perhaps not as, maybe not as grave as the one in Germany in the early 30s, you do have uh, a certain uh, analogy in the sequence, right? Uh, uh, governments, which are also in some ways authoritarian governments, uh, but which nevertheless don't manage to attain a kind of stability and therefore to properly, you know, reproduce uh, capitalist relations and relations of power, which then lead to um, uh, accepting the kind of, you know, the sort of exceptional solution. That said, of course, Mussolini, uh, Mussolini's uh, government or regime only becomes, in some sense, a, a fully uh, authoritarian one in 1925, right? Of course, there's also, I mean, it's already a, a movement, uh, a regime backed by a violent uh, uh, movement uh, of squadrismo, but the it, it's really around around 1925 that the um the kind of one party state and the banning of other movements takes place so there's a there's a kind of you know three year period so it's much you know obviously it's like it's a much uh well considerably slower process right if we're comparing it to the mm -hmm. one in Nazi Germany yeah I, I remember reading a book by um by Michael Mann about fascism. Mm -hmm. It might just be called yeah. like fa fascism. <laughs> and it's it's called it's called fascists. Okay, yeah. right. A, that's a really interesting book from the yeah early two thousands. I think it's really interesting. Yeah, and I what what I remember from the book is it, it's curious. So you were saying 1920 are these years of upheaval, and then the march on Rome doesn't happen until twenty two. And one of the things I remember him saying was that you know those red years uh, was that what it was called the years of red or red years yeah the red years the red, years. Also, the, the red two years yeah red, red biennial two years. yeah yeah that actually those years weren't so terrifying for capital it was after the social democrats actually took control in in regions across sort of across in regional mm. governments across italy and then that was really scary because then they could actually pass meaningful mm. legislation which would help workers and that's why fascism was was 
it was needed from their perspective. Um, so I, yeah, that's I, a, that's yeah. an interesting yeah. That's definitely a, an interesting important proposition. It probably has also to do with the tricky question of the quite complex right alliance of uh, of interests uh, and um, constituency, so to speak, right? Because in many ways, the the bulk of fascist violence, at least in my understanding is carried out uh, more in uh, an agrarian than a factory setting, right? Mm. And in some ways, it's um, it's the problem of agrarian and land reform and of the rights of, uh, you know, kind of proletarianized uh, peasantry, sharecroppers, et cetera, et cetera, uh, that, that I think, uh, you know, I think man's point is uh, is pertinent, especially in that regard, right? And, and mm. in, in many ways, some of the, some of the strongest initial backing uh, for fascism is at the level, right, of that kind of land owning uh, mm -hmm. or or rural uh, class, right? And I, I think, I think in general, that's probably a feature of fascism that we uh, anachronistically tend to downplay. Uh, the mm -hmm, role mm -hmm. of uh, agrarian relations of land uh, and um, you know in 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 the dynamics of, of fascism, including you know in another context, right? Also, of fascism's relationship to to colonialism as well. Yeah, I mean you, you see it so clearly in in Latin America, uh, but like today in, in Brazil, um, a lot of Bolsonaro support comes from big landholders. And actually, I, I once heard that the reason that the Nazis are called the Nazis, because you know, it's the National Socialist Party, was because um, a, a de derogatory term for, you know, basically German peasants, people in the periphery, like Hicks, was Ignatios. Uh, oh, okay. And so it was That's sort of, yeah, they would, they embraced the, they embraced the insult and the, huh. you know, the nickname for Nazio there would be Nazi. But before we get too far ahead, I guess yeah. the other really basic question I have is, so I thought I was teaching fascism correctly, but then part of the reason I reached out to you is that I, I figured maybe, maybe I was wrong all this time, because you say that fascism crystallizes into a project of public violence for private capital, but that it is, or and that it is fundamentally a liberal economic philosophy. And I got to say that, stood counter to everything that I've ever told the kids. So explain, please, what do you mean by that? Yeah, uh, it, it also goes somewhat counter to what uh, I was telling the kids when I was teaching historical sociology <laughs> a few years ago, which is indeed where I uh, first came across the Michael Mann uh, text. Um, incidentally, uh, that was when I had one of the, my, my most uh, revelatory pedagogical experience after a student gave a very compelling presentation of theories of fascism. And then in the corridor, after I was congratulating them, uh, asked me, so uh, who was this Mussolini guy? And I thought, okay, <laughs> I, I need to teach somewhat differently because if, if you produce a, a, a seemingly, uh, you know, uh, effective theory of fascism, but you're not entirely sure that it happened, right? It's uh, Oh I my might God. have gone the, that's my, the cart that's for my... the horse. So, 
That's my I became, life. I That's became my life, a, Alberto. <laughs> yeah, I became a bit more of a historian than a theorist at that moment, at least for the purposes <laughs> of teaching. So the point of the piece, I, I suppose, was, uh, yeah, in a sense, to to bend the stick in perhaps a counterintuitive direction, though a counterintuitive direction that I think is well borne out by the archival historical empirical record which doesn't have to do with fascism as some kind of uh, eternal or uh, ahistorical ideal type uh, but rather with the genesis of uh, of fascism certainly in its in the Italian case and recently, which I think I might have mentioned in the article, um, a very uh, a very good uh, scholar, uh, particularly scholar of Gramsci, Fabio Felizzini, published uh, a uh, volume, a collection of speeches and writings uh, by Mussolini, I think, between 1921 and 1932 or something like that. And, you know, so I started, you know, reading it. And whilst I had already come across texts that, you know, mentioned uh, Mussolini's uh, attraction towards, you know, what he calls the Manchester state or liberal political economy. I was really struck that precisely around the time of the march on Rome, uh, he uh, makes speeches with uh, that feature statements about fascism's economic vision, uh, which, you know, as as I, I guess suggested in the article, wouldn't go amiss in many, um, you know, ultra-liberal, even neoliberal texts, right? Mm. Uh, where he says things like, you know, we have to get the state out of the railway system and the postal system. We might even look into privatizing high schools, right? Et cetera, et cetera. Wow. Um, so the the I guess the question is how do we how do we understand that, right? Um, part of it is, of course, you could say, is a kind of opportunistic uh, pleading to a constituency that uh, is obviously very necessary for Mussolini to enter government, especially to enter government through a, you know, semi-parliamentary path, right? He's not, the March on Rome is not a, mil a military coup d'etat, right? It's a kind of street show of force that's then the spectacular side of like a backcourt or political maneuver that, that works very well. Um, and so he does need, you know, very powerful interests, and he has very powerful interests in part uh, behind him, in part because of this um, of this gambit, right? Uh, to what extent that's his conviction or not is perhaps irrelevant uh, at, at that level. And even a very prominent liberal economist and and, and liberal um, politicians most famous uh, among them perhaps being uh, Luigi Einaudi, who then becomes president of Italy in the post-war mm -hmm. period and is actually mm -hmm. also part of the kind of neoliberal thought collective, right? I think he participates in the Mont Pelerin Society and all that. Greet this um, um, fiscal conservatism, right? Uh, and, and liberal policy and this um, interruption of what is seen as the socialist, uh, you know, the, the socialist or social democratic uh, explosion, right, of state intervention and subsidies, etc., as being extremely attractive. So in that regard, uh, I think it's, you know, it's an important um, check or counter 
to a narrative about fascism that even when it distinguished it from forms of authoritarian state socialism, nevertheless put it within a kind of, um, you know, totalitarian quote unquote camp, which seemed to be by definition illiberal in its, not just in its politics, right? Uh, but in its political economy, right? So mm-hmm. kind of, and and of course it's very true uh, that um, in the 19, you know, during the fascist regime, there's of course uh, uh, a considerable level of um, intervention of the state in all sorts of domains of uh, economic life, right? But the interesting thing could be argued is that uh, actually that's not the original inspiration, right? The original inspiration is much more a nationalist, anti-socialist, and potentially like authoritarian liberal version. But in many ways, Mussolini and the fascist movement from the, once they take power, have this problem of, you know, ruling, uh, over a, a, a mass uh, society with a pretty large uh, you know, industrial working class and with all of the you know requirements of the modern state. And so you could say in some sense that their path towards a kind of interventionist state is not necessarily driven first and foremost by the ideology, but by the circumstances, right? So, you know, and I guess there you could think of, I mean, one interestingly provocative book uh, that I uh, that makes a case along these lines is the book by the German historian Wolfgang Schivelbusch, who's published, I think, maybe a decade ago, or at least mm. an English translation, which I think is called Three New Deals, right? It's about the US, Italy. Yeah, yeah, I've read that book. Yeah, yeah. Germany. Yeah. And it's a kind of fascinating uh, cultural, you know, cultural, political, economic history, right? Of, of uh, also of all of these plans that circulate through these domains that are also in many ways very politically different, but sometimes have odd convergences, right? Like the idea of building new cities that are like fused together, the industrial and the rural, all sorts of aspects of um uh, I also remember I was reading that book on 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 the subway in uh, on the tube in London and had uh had an American tourist like turn to me in total shock when they saw they're like <laughs> what does that how can that be? Uh, so that was that was kind of amusing. But in any case, I think that then, you know, I, I think so it's not to say that fascism in its practice and its historical reality doesn't um, combine itself with these kind of hypertrophic projects of, of state intervention, etc. cetera. Uh, but to be conscious, I guess, of um you know that that's not necessarily right uh, uh part of its ideological and and political dna so to speak right uh, and then in many ways even when it engages in all of those forms of regimentation and 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 state you know forms of state planning etc it still remains remarkably committed you know to the to the depression of wages, to the brutal disciplining of the labor force, rural, you know, and 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 in many ways also to to keeping itself uh, very much on on the side of at least specific um, capitalist and, and and political elites in in that sense. Um, I think there's a really uh, and I only read it 
because it wasn't out yet and it only came out a few weeks ago, but only after I wrote that article, there's a wonderful uh, new book uh, by an Italian historian, the book's in English, uh, Clara Mattei, called The Capital Order, mm. How Economists Invented Austerity and Paved the Way to Fascism, that does a comparative analysis actually of Britain and Italy in the period basically 1919 into the kind of mid-20s. And actually shows how much, and and does it just through the through the elite economists uh, that were imposing austerity policies, and just shows how much circulation of ideas and how many affinities uh, there were, and is also very interesting in showing then how some of these in Italy, how some of these uh, liberal austerity economists then you know became the you know the ministers of, of finance or etc mm-hmm. of the early early fascist um uh governments you know as you're speaking i'm i'm thinking that so much of so much of your description of the at least the the ideology of, of mussolini at least it's not that different than than neoliberals today and it seems to me that in some ways the neoliberals are really smart and very successful because you don't actually need you can still discipline labor without the totalitarian state and you don't really need to use although you're using violence in more discreet ways you don't need to use these hoodlums in the street beating people up um you you can destroy mm-hmm. labor labor another way so i'm wondering if we've sort of if if they've sort of perfected the machine a little bit like you don't have to call yourself fascist you can still have the trappings of democracy but you can do what the fascists wanted to do is that kind mm-hmm. of like i always tell the kids to be careful to like not make these connections which aren't there am i making a connection which is not real uh i think it depends on what the on on what angle one takes right so i guess that's the the tricky issue is whether one is talking about the the function, I suppose, or the role that particular political projects um, have in, in broader social division of power and, and class and other conflicts, or whether one is talking about, in some sense, the ideologies uh, themselves, right? So, yeah, if your perspective is the perspective of... Um, analyzing and atomizing different policies, right, that um, manage to uh, repress repress wages or repress uh, social mobilization of working classes or maintain, uh, yeah, the order of capital or social hierarchies of various sorts. And I think that, you know, the point that you make uh, is... Um, is definitely uh pertinent right and and uh, and of course the the history of um yeah the history of of neo liberalism itself certainly in its uh in its latin american uh trajectory and and obviously the the, the mm. case of chile is the one that most people understandably um mm. foreground uh obviously shows the kind of contiguity right like the um, the way in which um, a uh, you know a, a form of, of of rule and rhetoric and political practice, etc., which has profound 
affinities and in some cases of the personnel kind of direct inspiration from uh, the trajectory of European fascism, uh, you know, eventually served as the, you know, as like the, yeah, the incubator or channel for, mm -hmm. in a sense, the, the purest form of, uh, uh, of, of neoliberal um, practice, right? And there it's really interesting too, right? Because we, we think, you know, alas, in, in light of the failed efforts to replace uh, the 1980 constitution that was passed under Pinochet, but the 1980 constitution uh, is is fascinating in some respect as a as this kind of laboratory case because it's basically a you know a regime that you know is kind of maintaining you know martial law night curfews for decades and is is disappearing dissidents etc cetera, etc cetera, but which creates this constitution which is the constitution constitutionalization of primacy of free markets right it's like writ writing like writing the impossibility of socially emancipatory planning into the constitutional structure of the state right and uh that's in some way the uh you know at the core of that neoliberal project i mean this is something that the the french uh sociologists and philosophers pierre dardot and christian laval have shown very well right in terms of of neoliberalism this kind of constitutionalization of market order is the way uh in which uh some of the social violence that's really explicit and writ large in the fascist case becomes a, a softer kind of juridical violence right mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and and i guess and i guess chile is instructive in that sense because you have both sides right and 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 the more i mean until these recent movements and many of the more you know uh sober or pessimistic analysts including in chile of that situation would have said that you know in many ways you know, locking in at the constitutional, as well as in many ways, the everyday level, that uh, neoliberal and therefore uh, anti-socialist project was like an epical victory, right? So even after the dictatorship ends as a form of military rule, uh, what it was put in place for remains, right? And so Oh, mm -hmm. And that, you know, that's why, it, you know, in, in some way, again, though, recently thwarted, it was is very striking that that these recent movements, both at the level of the street and, and of politics in Chile, were explicitly thought of as movements to to end something that hadn't ended. Right. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like, mm -hmm. you know, that that, you know, decades after uh, after Pinochet was no longer in power, actually, people were still being ruled right by the. Right. The juridical and material ghost of this mm -hmm. violent, uh, 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 violent dictatorship. Um, yeah, so I think I, I think they're you know what I, I think you're right, especially at the pedagogical level. One has to be careful because mm -hmm. you know when everything just becomes fascism, then you're like not exactly yeah. on yeah. Um, in a great situation for mm -hmm. for analyzing or indeed acting. But I do think there are yeah there are kind of in, important moments of of contiguity and affinity especially if if you think about some of the um uh motives right and some of the rationales that allowed fascist movements to rise to power of course then we also have to think of all of the you know pretty massive uh historical 
differences and discrepancies, asymmetries, etc. I mean, you're mm-hmm. not least in the case of Italian fascism that, you know, you're talking about a movement that uh, emerges out of uh, the mobilization of um, uh, mobilization of the war and of nationalism in the context of the war, and indeed also very much in the context of uh, Italy's colonial and settler colonial practices and ambitions. Mm-hmm. But also, you know, it's a movement that is a violent street movement also because there's ten- hundreds of thousands of, you know, demobilized men who know how to kill other men, right? And who have mm-hmm. done so, mm-hmm. <laughs> which is which is not at all an insignificant factor in the specific, right? Like, um, phenomenology, right, and the f- specific features of uh, of fascism in the interwar period. So, you know, then even when you have kind of continuities of ideology or continuities in the function of certain forms of far-right politics in terms of maintaining or reproducing orders of hierarchy, exclusion, etc., I think there there's also other realities that speak to some of the significant differences you know yeah vis-a-vis um classical or kind of historical uh fascism i've been reading your work in preparation for this interview and you taught and written about both nihilism and apathy and i've been thinking a lot about about nihilism these days and i'm wondering i know that things are different i know the terms are different they don't mean the same thing how does one distinguish what the relationship between nihilism and fascism might be? Well, no, no, nihilism and apathy. Because I know you. Oh, okay, okay. You've written about yeah. apathy, and the, uh, the context is sometimes I feel like what I'm looking at in my classes is a kind of nihilism. I I just finished reading rereading um, Cornell West's both race matters and then democracy matters, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and in it he talks a lot about the nihilism that that plagues the United States. And I, I've been thinking about in terms of my, my, what I see with my students, but I don't know if that's actually the correct diagnosis. Maybe mm. it's in fact just apathy. And I'm wondering how we tell the difference. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, nihilism, which, you know, uh, trained, uh, so to speak in European philosophy as I was, I can't but read, you know, through, Nietzsche and uh, you know Russian literature and and etc. You know nihilism seems to me a, a position or 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 a kind of a mode that seems related to a particular relationship to history, right? Like um, so so to be to be a nihilist is already even in in its like sheer negativity to have to have some kind of relationship, right? To mm-hmm. To, uh, to have almost a, a kind of narrative, even if it's a narrative of the evacuation, collapse, uh, degradation of, you know, meaning and uh, and, and value, right? Um, whilst, whilst apathy, uh, I think apathy is just something that always just seems um, waiting to be analyzed, right? Like a little bit like anxiety or something, right? Like where you think, well, under this name, there might be really dissimilar uh origins or even dissimilar kind of phenomena right and then i guess if you go back to the you know to the uh, famous or infamous kind of nietzschean uh diagnosis then you already have that distinction that he makes right between between passive and 
an, an active nihilism, right? So, uh, and and in some mm-hmm. sense, the the apathy, I suppose, could be seen on the uh, on the on the kind of passive side of the of the ledger. I mean, I, I do think actually maybe to tie this question to what we were just saying before, it's it's striking uh, to track the role that various forms of pessimism, right, had in mm-hmm. the uh, origins of fascist thought, right? So not just thinking about degradation and uh, kind of all of this sort of social Darwinist kind of metaphors, but also just a kind of uh, profound forms of of uh, historical pessimism and the the rejection of notions of progress, right? Which is, of course, also linked to the whole discussion about nihilism. So I think there's interesting links to trace also between those two different debates. 